What's up, you guys? Happy New Year! I hope your 2020 is off to an amazing start, uh, minus the whole World War III bit. As we all collectively turn our eyes toward the future this month, I wanted to take a quick jaunt through the past. I have a really personal topic for you today, one that is really close to my life. And before I dive into these personal, emotionally loaded things, I just want to emphasize that the episode today is not meant to be a condemnation or a criticism of people of faith. My purpose today is to humanize these conversations and to share the stories of what happens after people leave Mormonism. As some of you might know, I am ex-Mormon. I was raised a faithful child of God in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am a Mormon. Dang it. A Mormon just I practiced devoutly until our tumultuous breakup when I was a teenager. My reasons for leaving Mormonism were straightforward. I disagreed with the antiquated gender roles and the homophobia. The more I read about the history of the church, the more sinister it felt. I tried to ask the adults in my life about this aspect of the church, but I was stonewalled with meaningless platitudes. Just believe. Just have faith. Which worked for a while, until I thought, nah. angst and isolation leaving the church brought to my life was also a new beginning. A taste of freedom, physically, mentally, emotionally, sexually, and especially intellectually. The world suddenly felt enormous. A world of knowledge right at my doorstep. It was in this period of my life that I started making YouTube videos. I was seeking community, and I was hoping to find like-minded people. Back then, there were very few faith crisis groups online. So, no surprises that my first YouTube channel became a sort of baby hub for the young and formerly devout who were also going through it. In the 10 or 15 years since then, there's been a massive explosion of Mormon defectors and faith crises as the result of the information available online. So today's episode is an ode to resilience, to moving forward, and how different people have used the internet to pick up the pieces. Chapter 1. Operation Mormon Ads In late 2017, an undercover mission called Mormon Ads took over Facebook. It was a delicate operation, orchestrated by an anonymous man in Southern California. He'd recently left the Mormon church, and like many apostates to their religion, he was desperate to be heard by his friends and family about the real reasons why he had left the church. Unable to reach them through the usual venues, he took an unusual approach by stealthily placing ads on their Facebook timelines. He used their email addresses to target the ads and dressed them up to look like official Latter-day Saint ads, LDS for short. He used stock photos featuring smiling families and glamour shots of ornate Mormon temples. The page names were neutral, LDS essays, 
LDS answers. He hoped to bait his family to read about the real history of the Mormon church. Why did Joseph marry a 14-year-old girl? The church has answers. Read them here. One ad read, What is polyandry and why are Mormon millennials leaving the church over it? Fair Mormon tackles this question and defends the faith. He had to be careful. He had a split second to get a click. If his targets suspected the article was criticizing the church, they'd simply scroll on. Mormon ads was ambitious on its face, but to truly appreciate just how ambitious, a little context is necessary here. Being a true believing Mormon means not listening to critics of the church, unless it's to convert them back to faith. To listen and truly consider another perspective is considered a sin. Because of this, as you might imagine, meaningful relationships between ex-Mormons and true-believing Mormons are difficult. Both parties end up feeling misunderstood. It's a dynamic that often plays out between family members when one leaves the church. This type of tension is familiar, but I'm not sure it has to be painful. My dad and I, close as we are, carefully avoid serious conversations about faith. He holds a leadership position at the church. Meanwhile, I've aired my frustrations with Mormonism publicly. My dad and I talked about our differences in depth exactly one time, when I was 18 or so. While the rest of our family was out of town, my dad and I took a weekend trip to Tahoe to hang out at the lake. On the trip, he listened intently to my questions about Mormonism and the nature of God. He was unusually patient with me and gentle, but still seemed strained. Looking back, I wonder if he thought his window to save me was closing. Our conversations that weekend meandered in the woods and picked up again over dinner until at one point he interjected abruptly. He told me he couldn't discuss it anymore. His faith was in jeopardy and he'd reached his limit. This was a turning point in my relationship with my dad. He had tried, truly, and at that moment I decided that was enough for me. I never brought the topic back up again, and neither has he, really. But over the following years, our relationship slowly moved toward a healthier place, in spite of our differences. I consider myself lucky not every raging heathen apostate gets to be heard, truly heard, by their devout family or finds real closure. In fact, most people don't. And so, desperate times call for desperate measures. Which brings me back to Mormon ads. The project began to spread as other ex-Mormons who were also eager to reach family members got involved. They'd send him long lists of email addresses, make donations, and then he'd run the ads for them. About half of those targeted by the ads would actually click on them, which is actually a pretty huge success by Facebook standards. But eventually, there was a conflict within the ex-Mormon community itself. Is this ethical? Is it moral to plant thoughts and ideas for a targeted list of unsuspecting strangers? If you're pretty much any tech company, the answer is yes. This is, more or less, how hundreds of ads are served to each of us online every day. But tech companies are hardly a reliable moral compass. 
Mormon Ads wasn't selling clothes or gadgets. It was selling ideas. As we've seen in the fallout from the 2016 election, using Facebook ads to sell ideas is a dubious practice. But the intention of Mormon ads wasn't world domination. It was to be understood. Where is the line? For some members of the ex-Mormon community, Mormon ads had crossed it. The project was ousted from its major lifeline, the ex-Mormon subreddit, and it shuttered a few months later. Mormons are, of course, not the only faith community going through this stuff. In 2000, about 6% of Americans identified as non-religious. But today, in 2020, that number is over 25%. It's a sharp incline that picked up right as social media made its way into the hands of the masses. While we can't chalk it all up to the internet, because these things are rarely that simple, it's probably the largest contributing factor. But there are other factors as well, like the rise in individualist attitudes amongst millennials. We tend to favor individual choices and consequences over collective decision-making. There's also the role of community. Churches are no longer the community hubs that they were in the past. And for better or worse, many people are going online instead. Whatever the causes may be, or how aware the public is of what's going on, future humans will probably look back on this era as a turning point in crises of faith. But like Mr. Rogers says, in times of crisis, look for the helpers. Chapter 2, Over the Covenant. Before we dive into today's interview, a little love for the sponsor of Indirect Message, Sweet Pea Dating App. In a world that revolves around addictive algorithms to keep us swiping on our phones for hours, Sweet Pea is taking a new approach to online dating. Just help people connect over the things they really care about. With features that aim to replicate dating offline, Sweet Pea helps us build quality connections through meaningful conversations. So by the time you guys make that first date, it feels more like your second or third date. Start 2020 off with a new approach. You can give it a whirl by downloading Sweet Pea for free on the App Store. Thanks so much for your support, guys. Today, my guest is John DeLynn, creator of the Mormon Stories podcast. He's a family man and a national leader in the post-Mormon community. In the past 10 years, he's shared over 1,200 hours of the stories of Mormons all over the world. But John has paid a serious personal price for his work. His story is compelling and human. I'm so grateful to call him a friend. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I was born and raised a Mormon. Uh, We call that under the covenant. My ancestors, my Mormon ancestors were pioneers. And, you know, my my grandmother was was the daughter of a polygamous marriage. I knew my grandma, so I could actually talk to my grandma about what it was like to, to grow up in a polygamous household as the daughter of a a second or third wife. And I served a Mormon mission in Guatemala and, you know, went to Brigham Young University. That was the only school I applied to. And I was living the Mormon dream, got married in the Mormon temple in Washington, D.C., had four kids, and was really thriving in Mormonism until around 2001 when uh, I started studying church history in depth for a, a calling that I'd received in church to to educate high schoolers 
in a in a program we have called Early Morning Seminary, and I started studying Mormon church history to be a better uh, teacher to these high school Mormon students. And it was while I was uh, living in Seattle, working for Microsoft, I had a great career, great job, making you know six figures and all that. And uh, I had met with Bill Gates. I you know had worked with the CEO of Microsoft, and everything was going really well. And but then I had this faith crisis where I learned all this stuff about the Mormon Church that I had never learned before, like that Joseph had a, Joseph Smith had over thirty wives, and some of these wives some of these wives were fifteen, sixteen years old. That Eight or nine of them were married to other men at the time he married them. And that led me down this path of studying Mormon history in depth. And my faith just sort of unraveled. And it was a really traumatic thing to experience. No one in my family wanted to talk about it, not my parents, not my brother. No one in my local congregation was equipped to talk about it. And uh, there was nothing on the internet at the time that, that could support people in faith crisis. And uh, I just, I, I got really depressed. I went two or three years just like not shaving, wearing Birkenstocks to work and to church. Like, uh, it was a dark time. My, my wife was kind of worried about what was going to happen to me. My kids felt like I was distracted and disheveled. And I just, I realized something bad and something good. Something bad was everything that I had based my life upon uh, was no longer true. What was good is I... I found a purpose in life, which I was searching for. And I realized that my purpose was going to be to help other Mormons go through this because I, it didn't take me long to realize that people could get divorced over this stuff. Uh, people could get estranged from their family and friends. They could lose their community, just like any high demand religion or cult that you might study, whether it's Scientology or Jehovah's Witness or, you know, Orthodox Judaism. Uh, you lose your faith in your religion, and it can it can be the end of so much that you hold dear and love. So I literally just uh, I, I I resigned from Microsoft in spite of the glowing career that I had. I moved to to Logan, Utah, uh, in two thousand four, and it, by two thousand five, I had discovered podcasts and I started my own called Mormon Stories. And the podcast has been going strong for almost 15 years. And the whole purpose of it was to to support Mormons who were in faith crisis or faith transition, to help prevent divorces, to help prevent depression and suicide, to help keep, you know, families from splitting apart, but also to help maybe indirectly not only educate Mormons, but but maybe get the church to to become more educated and to be more humane about how they dealt with people who were going through what I was going through. So there's a lot to unpack there. Can I ask about your marriage? Did it put any strain on your relationship with Margie? Yeah, so fortunately, Margie was very open-minded. So even though she was devout in, in the church and she was a convert to the church, she had joined the church when she was eight years old. So when I, I, and I, and I chose her partly as a spouse because I, you know, I wanted, I wanted a spouse that was going to love me first and not the church first, just in case I, cause I had some questions at BYU before I really, um, everything unraveled. So fortunately, Margie was very supportive. She cried when I told her I didn't believe anymore, but then I had her read this book called No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. And you just read that book and, uh, you know, it's kind of game over for an Orthodox testimony. So she read that and she was like, all right, what do we do? 
And oddly enough, oddly enough, we stayed in the church after we lost our faith for another 13 years. And what? Yeah, yeah, because I had studied Judaism and I had learned from Orthodox Judaism that you don't have to believe in Moses or God to be a Jew. You can just be a cultural Jew. You can you can be a Reformed Jew, right, or a Reconstructionist Jew. And I thought, well, I love Mormonism. The church had treated me really well. And if Jews can do it, we can do it. So I thought, well, let's just, we'll have the best of both worlds. We can stay in the church. We can keep the community. We could raise our kids in it. And I can sing and, you know, all that stuff. But we don't have to believe. And so, you know, part of part of the adventure that Margie and I went on was this, this idealistic quest to say, maybe you can be a Mormon but not believe. And maybe we'll start this podcast together and maybe we'll actually transform our church and make our church more progressive. So Margie became my partner in all this uh, in pretty short order. And I imagine that's a happier ending than a lot of people have. Oh, I, w- I was super lucky because many of the people that I deal with, they tell their spouse they no longer, be- no longer believe. And within short order, they're served divorce papers and they're ostracized and alienated from everyone they love and care about. And the kids are become, you know, objects of a custody battle. And yeah, leaving Mormonism can end your life as you know it, uh, just like in Scientology or the Jehovah's Witness organization. Um, It's not always that way, but it's often that way. Do you think that's, that happens to couples who put faith as the more, most important aspect of their life and the relationship is secondary or is it fear? I mean, what separates you from people who end up divorcing over this? Well, that's the whole thing is that if you, if you're, if you're doing Mormonism as you should, you should put God in the church over um, over your family because the church teaches that the whole purpose of this life is to get to the celestial kingdom, which is the, the highest degree of heaven um, where God lives. That's the whole purpose of life. And so if your Mormons would believe that if your spouse can't take you to the celestial kingdom, then you need to find a spouse that can. And so... You really, most most Orthodox Mormons that get married, they marry the church, uh, they mutually marry the church um, more than they marry each other. It's sort of like you serve your two-year mission, you're 20 or 21, you get home, you find the first, you know, woman or man that you're attracted to that has a heartbeat, and within a month or two, you marry them. And it kind of doesn't matter whether you're best friends. What matters is, are you attracted to them? Are they worthy? Are they righteous? Will they raise healthy, righteous children? And will they stay committed to the church? And so if you're doing Mormonism right, it it will wreck your family if if your partner leaves the church because the church comes first. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of ironic because so much of the Mormon experience is about family. And I think that's what draws a lot of people in is the focus on the family, the family home evenings, um, a lot of doctrine about what family means in the afterlife. So it's kind of disturbing that, you know, everything can can just kind of go up in smoke so easily. No, that's that's what's ironic is that the 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 Mormon any any Orthodox Mormon will tell you that family is is among it's it's like God, church and family are the most important things. But that's that's the rub because Mormonism destroys families. It, you know, it, it's a great foundation to build a healthy, happy, vibrant family, assuming everybody's on the same page. 
So if you're if if everybody's on the same page, everybody believes it's like the Garden of Eden. It's beautiful. It's 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 literally perfect. It's like the Osmond family. It's Donnie and Marie. It's 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 motherhood and apple pie and all goodness. Where it goes off the rails is if a kid is gay or if a kid loses their faith or if dad or mom doesn't believe everything, then all of a sudden it can become the worst nightmare of your life. So when you set out to sort of maybe change things from the inside by being a cultural Mormon, as you're kind of describing, what kinds of things were you gutting for? One of the main reasons why people lose their, Mormons lose their faith in the 21st century is because of Google and the internet. <laughs> um, you know, if you go back 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, there there were historians that knew there were problems with the with the church's history and with its founding and with its truth claims. But any time a historian or a scholar or an activist would talk about those problems, they would they would be excommunicated from the church. So the author of that book, I mentioned Fawn Brody, who was the niece of Mormon prophet David O. McKay, she came out with that book in 1945. It's called No Man Knows by History. And and she was a legit scholar. She had studied at the University of Chicago. She went on to be a professor at UCLA, one of the first real legitimate female historian scholars in the 20th century. Well, she was excommunicated within, you know, what, five years of publishing that book. And so immediately that book was branded as subversive. Mm-hmm. And and then Mormons knew not to read it. And if you go to any decade of Mormonism, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, you'll be able to find people that tried to speak up about the problems with the church and were summarily uh, excommunicated. And so what you would have by by the year 2000 is a is you know f- you know millions of Mormons who were raised Mormon who were sixth generation Mormons who you know spent years in church education and had no idea about the even the most basic things that most people know about Mormons that Joseph Smith um you know married 30 women that you know the things that I mentioned before that they were married to other men that they were 15 year olds you know some of the ways that Joseph Smith was dishonest, the fact that he perpetrated fraud, the fact that some of our founding scriptures are literally disproven by science as being objectifiably non-historical and false. But you'd get Mormons in 2005 who didn't know any of this because they only read correlated, approved versions of church history and were warned to stay away from anyone who taught any version of the history or the doctrine or the theology that wasn't supported by the top church leaders. And again, they would punish and excommunicate anyone who who tried to teach the legitimate factual history. And so I think job one for Mormon stories was to educate Mormons about their own history and doctrine and theology. But but oddly, I wanted to do it in a way to where they could still maintain faith. And that was, you know, because the Bible's got problems. Moses is, you know, Moses kills somebody. Noah gets drunk. Like, Peter denies Christ. Like if you read the Bible, you'll find all sorts of prophets and apostles doing all sorts of crazy things. You know, people hold slaves in the Bible. And so I had this naive idea that people could still know all the factual history and the doctrine and theology about Mormonism and still believe. And so job one of Mormon stories was to, was to educate Mormons about their own history. You know, I suffered in silence. So many people I knew were suffering in silence. And I thought, we need to be able to connect with each other. And if our bishops or our wives or our leaders or siblings or our parents won't be able to talk to us about these problems, well, then let's form these communities of support 
so that Mormons in Seattle, post-Mormons in Seattle can support each other in London, in Brazil, wherever you are. Let's use the internet to make it easy for people to find community. That was probably the, maybe maybe in the end, that was the biggest thing that we tried to do. Yeah, and you have succeeded in doing that, but you were not able to do it while being a friend of the Mormon church, right? Yeah, so we, we created literally hundreds of Facebook groups, you know, we definitely have succeeded in creating communities all over the world for post-Mormons and progressive Mormons to connect with each other. But but yeah, the church gets really uncomfortable when Mormons meet and talk and connect outside of its approved channels. So the lo- long story short is the church um, initiated an investigation of me uh various times throughout the life of Mormon stories. But the third time it started an investigation in 2014, it it actually ended up holding a disciplinary council, um, like a trial, and it ended up excommunicating me in 2015. And the reasons, the stated reasons that I, that I was excommunicated were, number one, they wanted me to shut the podcast down and stop talking openly about Mormonism. I told them I couldn't do that. They wanted me to stop having any meetings with, with, stop creating support groups for Mormons to talk to each other. They wanted me to stop speaking out in favor of feminism and women's rights. And they wanted me to stop speaking out in favor of LGBT people. And I told them I couldn't do any of that. And so they excommunicated me. (laughs) So, yeah. So by that point, were you kind of ready for what happened? You'd been investigated multiple times or was it still kind of a shock? Uh, it was awful, honestly. I mean, I, from the day I bought the microphone in 2005, because I had seen so many people get excommunicated, I knew that that was a real possibility. But unlike a lot of people that become activists in Mormonism, I didn't become an activist because I hated Mormonism or wanted Mm -hmm. to burn it down. I became an activist because I love Mormonism. I love the Mormon people. Mm -hmm. The church had been very good to me. And that's part of the reason why I didn't want to leave it. And, and of course, Let's just talk about privilege for a second. The church was made for me. I'm a six foot six, white, heterosexual, cisgender, educated male. Like who wouldn't love Mormonism under the, <laughs> those circumstances? And and I looked at my activism as the tax I had to pay to remain, you know, a member when there were so many problems in the church. But mm-hmm. but because I loved the church so much and had so many fond memories of it, and it helped me through a lot of hard times, even though I knew excommunication was a high likelihood, I still had this naive belief that somehow I would escape it. Mm -hmm. And when it happened, I found it to be incredibly barbaric and inhumane and medieval and cold and Mm un-Christ-like. And it was deeply traumatic for me, for my wife, for my kids, and for the Mormon community. Um, my, my excommunication was covered in the New York Times. It was global news, and it was awful for uh, for years. And I think my family is still recovering from the trauma of that excommunication. I'm really sorry to hear that. There are so few people in the world that have hearts like yours, John, and they really oh. did lose um, such a beautiful asset to the church. And I know you know that, but 
I think it's important mm. to remember that. And I think it's really amazing what you've done in the aftermath and how you, you're really a shining example of how you can turn something that traumatic into something productive and healing, not just for yourself. Um, I don't know how much this has helped your own healing process, but for a lot of people. Um, and it seems like this whole, the podcast itself and the Thrive Conference, um, you know, maybe you've had your own faith process through those projects. Can you speak to that a little bit about how it has influenced and contributed to your current state of belief or, or feelings about the church? Sure. I've actually done surveys of people who leave Mormonism and, and Mormonism is different than, than Protestant, let's just say Protestant or mainline Christianity. If you, if you're a Presbyterian and you decide Presbyterian's not working for you, you often will become a Methodist or a Lutheran or a you know Catholic. Like a, a lot of mainstream Christianity is kind of interchangeable. Mm -hmm. What I've found with Mormonism is that that more often than not, if you leave Mormonism, you lose faith in in God and Jesus kind of altogether. It's 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 such a it's a religion that kind of ruins you in the sense that it teaches you that it's the one true church on the face of the earth. Your your leader, you know, the prophet, the Mormon prophet, speaks directly with God. It's not just like, oh, it's your pastor giving his best opinion. Well, you know, when you when you listen to and obey the Mormon prophet, the Mormon prophet literally speaks with God, has a bat phone, and tells you what God's thinking and what God wants for you. Mm -hmm. And so, and and it's the one true church. And and when you die, you get to become a god someday up in heaven to rule over your own worlds, like. Mormonism's got this theology that can't be beat, really, um, in, in terms of what it promises you. And so, if you leave, if you lose your faith in the Mormon Church, it's basically like you're ruined. That you have no appetite for any religion whatsoever. You you don't want to hear any pastor because you're like, well, you're probably just making it up, just like Joseph Smith did. You don't want to read the Bible because you're like, well, the Bible is just as corrupt as the Book of Mormon, and just as flawed. And and in the end, you just lose all taste for any religious tradition whatsoever. So I don't identify as an atheist or agnostic because I find those terms too often to be divisive and to separate people. But I will say that I don't um, I don't spend a lot of time anymore thinking about God or or Jesus or religion in the sense of like personal belief. I kind of have shifted to this more secular Buddhist position that nobody knows what's going to happen in the afterlife. Anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen in the afterlife either probably wants money from you or sex from you or something kind of fraudulent um, because nobody knows. We're all guessing. And so now my spirituality is literally living in the present moment, living day by day, and dedicating my life to being healthy, having a healthy marriage with my wife, raising my kids, and then finding a career that helps people, that alleviates suffering in the world right now, and that helps to make the world a better place. And that's my religion now. That sounds like humanism. Yeah, I think humanism is is definitely, again, that's a term that's been corrupted. You know, if sure, I think yeah. about growing up in the 80s with the Reagan kind of revolutions, like secular yeah. humanism is, is evil. So- <laughs> I, I think it's very it's a very humanist approach, but yeah. I eschew terms like humanist, atheist, and agnostic because then I, I find people 
turn their ears off. They stop sure. listening because of the negative associations with all those things. Yeah, 100%. Um, similar yeah. thing with like feminist, you know, don't really use that term exactly. as much anymore because it means different things to different people. And so if I'm using a term, humanist, feminist, whatever, it's not necessarily how they're using the term. Right. So I think bypassing the labels when it comes to stuff like this is helpful because it forces people to parse out what they really mean by those terms. And that's really the only way to come to a mutual understanding. Even people who mutually share descriptors may not see things the same way. Yeah. You'll, you'll find women in Mormonism that are like, I absolutely believe that men and women should have equal opportunity, but I'm not a feminist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or people who think that, I don't know, I, I also just feel like there's so many different kinds of feminism, um, especially with the internet exposing us to all colors and stripes of feminism, that it's not even really a useful term anymore. Um, even if we do agree on a very basic principle, the way that we parse out those complications is probably different. Absolutely. So something that's really interesting to me about you and something that I feel like I can learn from you about is you have this big community of people who are coming from all different, you know, experiences in their life. They obviously have shared experiences, but they might be at different places in processing that experience. Some people are really angry. Um, they're lashing out. They're mad. They feel like their time or their faith or their relationships have been taken from them. And some people in your purview, it seems, are maybe still Mormon even, um, who just want to have a conversation, who are more open-minded about their faith and don't necessarily want to hear the angry wrath <laughs> of people. Um, how, yeah. how have you managed to create space for both those groups um, and all of the ones in between those groups? That's a great question. Um, so there are very few moments in my life that I'm going to claim sort of uh, brilliance or, but, but there's one really good idea that I had in 2005, and that was to um, name my podcast Mormon Stories and to focus Mormon Stories not on ranting, not on pushing some agenda, but but to focus my podcast on long-form stories where people just just tell their stories. Mm -hmm. I am a huge believer, and I think you probably agree with this, that stories are among the most powerful things in the human existence. Where I think we we evolved to sit around the campfire and listen to stories. I think we evolved to understand the world in terms of stories as humans. And there's something, there are a few things about stories that make them incredibly powerful. One is that they're interesting. Everybody wants to listen to a story. You know, nothing makes, you know, that's what is Hollywood? Hollywood is a bunch of movies that are basically telling stories. And that's the whole entertainment industry. So stories are the best medium that I think we've discovered as humans to get people to feel. And um, and the final thing that's cool about stories is you really can't argue with someone's story. It, you're less defensive because they're just sharing their experience and they can the stories can hook you emotionally. What are some of the unifying experiences that people have, the gritty humanness of it? It doesn't really matter what someone's background is. Are there things that everyone shares? I think everybody shares either a current or a former love of Mormonism. Because 
As culty and as weird as Mormonism may seem to people on the outside at times, um, most people who have been Mormon at one time or another deeply loved and cherished it. Sometimes people don't really understand what it's like to really be a Mormon. They think it's like some weird sexual cult or something. Um, but the Mormon culture is actually really beautiful. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, there's so much. So here, uh, I can, I'll probably, you'll have to stop me, but here we go. <laughs> so number one, um, it's a great support for families. Mormons tend to have really close-knit families on average. And so you've got, you know, you, you almost always have three to, you know, three to six siblings. Your parents are committed to your family and your family's really tight-knit. You, you, you pray regularly with your family, like daily, morning and night. You study scriptures together as a family. You have Family Home Evening, which is where your family gets together every week on a Monday night and you play games and you talk and you laugh and you eat, you know, cookies or brownies or jello. If you're living the Mormon dream, you have this congregation uh, of members that that uh, you've known for a long, long time. Uh, all your all your close friends are in the church; they all believe like you do, and you've got this community of of families that all want to help you. So if you if your mom gets sick, they bring you casseroles. If your dad loses his job, they'll help you find a new job. If you if your house, you know, if your roof needs repair. 20 Mormons will show up and fix your roof. And if you if you need to move, Mormons where you're living, where you're moving from, will show up and help you load your truck. And then wherever you go, whether it's down the road or to another state entirely, wherever you arrive, you let the Mormons there know that you're arriving, and Mormons will show up to unpack your truck and and move all your stuff into your house. That's not fiction. That is the Mormon experience. As a Mormon, you believe that you're part of God's one true church, so you have this identity of being one of God's chosen people, and it feels great to know everything because Mormons believe that they know what where we came from before we came to this earth, why we're here and where we're going, and all the important truths of life, Mormons know it because we have this thing called the plan of salvation or the plan of happiness, which tells us why we're here and where we're going. And you're right, and everybody else is wrong, so you're better than everybody. Like, what's not to love? I don't get why yeah. people don't see that as amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you put it that way, it makes it easier to understand. And I just wonder why we can't have that without church. Yeah. No, it, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to create secular community. Like, everybody's trying to create community, but religion, and especially a high-demand religion like Mormonism, has some very significant advantages over secular groups because they have guilt and shame, right? Mm. It's one thing if you're a bunch of liberals, a bunch of godless liberals sitting around saying, hey, let's spend some time together. It's like, okay, well, let's meet on Sunday. And then Sunday rolls around and it's like, uh, I don't know, I'd rather go to Starbucks or I'd rather sleep in or binge watch Netflix. Like, But if you're Mormon, you know, if you don't pay your 10%, you're not going to go to heaven. So the church is well-funded, right? And then if you don't serve in the church, you're not going to go to heaven. And then, of course, you're trying to repent of all these sins because you may uh, masturbate or you may think of women as you shouldn't or you may be gay or whatever it is. You may have problems and you need Jesus to make you whole. And the only way to have access to Jesus is through the church. And so guilt and shame 
become an inc- and absolute truth claims become very, very compelling binding forces for community members. And so you've got to do everything the church tells you. And that's why the Mormon church, as of you know 2020, is worth over $200 billion. That is crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, with all that said, why, why are people leaving then? The, the short answer is Google, because, <laughs> um, because for the first time, people are able to learn about the church in ways that they weren't. When you find out that your leader was not just not the most amazing person who ever lived, but instead was a fraud and a charlatan, that's hard to maintain your belief. When your scriptures become open to scrutiny, scientific scrutiny, and they fail to stand up to scrutiny, that becomes hard. And then more and more um, people are becoming sensitive to to feminism. They're becoming sensitive to the LGBT issues. The church made some really draconian, awful uh, policy decisions uh, around gay, lesbian, or bisexual people in the past five or 10 years. And, and the church's policies around gay and lesbian people has caused a mass defection uh, within the church. And then a lot of a lot of millennials are leaving religion in general. You know, it's hard for an organization led by 80 and 90 year olds to stay relevant and to stay in touch with as fast as the as the world is moving in the internet age. And so mm-hmm. uh, on multiple fronts the church is hemorrhaging. Um but it still has 5 million active members and it still has more money than than God. And so uh, you know, that bodes well for the church's future. And if the Catholic Church can survive systemic pedophilia, you know, the Mormon Church is not going anywhere, but it but it, it will become it will become richer but smaller in in membership. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, we've talked about how people find more information than they can bear sometimes with Google. But what role does, you know, platforms like Facebook play. Facebook is definitely worth talking about. And so, so is podcasting. And so is Reddit, honestly. So Mormonism has the most vibrant podcasting community of all religious traditions that I'm aware of. There are dozens and dozens of Mormon-themed podcasts, and, and Mormons are active podcast listeners, probably more than any other religious tradition, in part because we started so early. And so, so many people have been able to, you know, it's just hard to process a faith crisis. It's hard to make sense of it all, to get your bearings, to not, you know, so many people who lose their faith feel like they're crazy and they feel like they're totally alone. And so podcasts become this fantastic way because nobody knows what you're listening to. I cannot overstate the importance of podcasting as a medium for reaching people. And one of my prayer, my secular prayers is that Judaism and Scientology and Jehovah's Witness, you know, evangelical Christianity will develop vibrant, progressive and post-religious communities, uh, podcast communities, because podcasts are an incredibly powerful way to reach people's hearts and minds in ways that are confidential and private that, that help them learn and become emotionally healthy without the immediate need for community, which is a more tricky thing. There's also global support groups on Facebook. And Facebook just makes it really easy for for people to connect, find community, find role models, share information, and learn that they're not alone. And so we were able to literally 
find a venue, pick a date, advertise on Facebook and through the podcast. And then we had 1,700 people show up. And that was the largest in-person gathering of progressive and post-Mormons in the history of Mormonism. Families are becoming best friends. Families are doing pic- cookouts and picnics and book clubs together. They're finding people to do life with. And that's probably the most valuable part of these communities. If you could just find three or four or five close friends or couples who live kind of near you, you could watch each other's kids, you can deliver each other casseroles, you can help each other move. You don't need some orthodox, you know, fundamentalist religion to have community. The last question I wanted to ask you is just about, um, you know, advice for people out there who might be questioning or having their own faith crisis. Um, Obviously, your podcasting community is a wonderful resource for people who are ex-Mormon, but um, more generally. If you're if you're going through a faith crisis, once you get angry and and it's it's easy to burn bridges, it's easy to 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 uh, go on your social media and condemn your religion and all its followers to burn every bridge and ruin every relationship you have. And um, you can wreck your marriage that way. You can get isolate. You can get uh, isolated from your own children. You can ruin your relationship with your parents, with your siblings. And so try to not let your shock and your anger destroy your life. Don't let your religion win in that sense. Take it slowly. Find healthy ways to process and cope with the change and and access the resources you need to help you navigate it in a healthy, constructive way. Um, Because you want to burn as few bridges as possible and you want to maintain as many relationships as you can. That's really good advice. I did not take it slowly. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought of you. I thought of you a little bit <laughs> when I said that. I think that thirty-year-old Lacey would have approached things much more closely to what you're describing. That's enough of the past for now. On the next episode of Indirect Message, the season one finale, we'll discuss the future of politics online. I want to go back to the drawing board about the urgent task we all have of mending our broken social media conversations. We're definitely capping off with a bang, you guys, and I hope to see you there. Have a great week.